So my single favorite item at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. is a very obscure plane. It's called the American M2 Lifting Body. It's up on the second floor hanging from the ceiling. You guys are all familiar with the TV show, The Six Million Dollar Man? Of course. Well, you have to be pretty old to know that, that show. No, no, it's, it's, it's in reruns. It's on Nick at Night. Oh. I remember my dad liking that. Does that help? I'm not that much younger than Nick. <laughs> so it's this triangular plane. But here's the story. At the opening of The Six Million Dollar Man, Steve Austin gets into a plane. And he's an astronaut working for NASA. He gets into a plane. The plane gets dropped from a bomber. And you can see... He's trying to fly the plane, and as the plane's coming in for a landing, there's this horrible crash. The plane hits the ground in the desert. Steve Austin lives through the crash, but that sets up the premise that the government decided to rebuild him as a bionic man. And here's the interesting thing. That actually happened, but not to Steve Austin. There really was a plane NASA was using for aerodynamic testing. It really did drop from a bomber. It really did crash in the desert, and the pilot really did live. Obviously, it wasn't Steve Austin, but the pilot's name was Bruce Peterson. The interesting thing is the plane that they show crashing on the $6 million man is the plane that's hanging in the National Air and Space Museum. It is the American M2 lifting body. There are only two of them in existence. This was number two. When they uh, they crashed it, it uh, became known as F3, the third version of the plane. So, its official designation is the M2F3. But it's the plane that you see crashing at the beginning of a $6 million man. It's at the Air and Space Museum. They don't tell you about it. But if you know the backstory, it's something very cool to point out to your friends. That's my favorite single, single favorite thing at the Air and Space Museum. Welcome to another episode of the unofficial guide to the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. With your host, Len Testa. All right, so let's do the introductions. This is the unofficial guide podcast to the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. This is the one that's downtown, the big one, the one that everyone goes to. I am Len Testa, one of the co-authors of the unofficial guide to Washington, D.C. With me is the main author, Renee Sclerou. And Renee, you did most of the, the bulk of the work on the book, right? So what were your main sections? My first was the introduction and kind of giving people the lay of the land, the neighborhoods. Also, I ha- I was in charge of looking for very family-friendly hotels. I covered, gosh, recreation, activities, entertainment, a variety of things. I forget, actually. And you live in D.C.? Yes, I do. Fantastic. Also with us is Brian McNichols. Brian wrote the Neighborhood Tours and Neighborhood Overviews for the book. I want to say hi, Brian. Hello. I also did... uh Many of the monuments, the non-museum attractions. So. That's right. Is there a monument to William Howard Taft? I think the Supreme Court has something there about him. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And there yeah, is right. there is a Taft monument, but it is not for him. It is for, uh, I believe it's his brother or son who is a senator. I think that his grave is actually also at the Arlington National Cemetery. It, his grave is, yeah, because he was both commander-in-chief and he was, he was the Supreme Court just the... Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He's the only the only person to ever lead uh, two branches of a government. Yes. Huh. That's news to me. It's the kind of trivia that you get in this book. All right. Again, the book is The Unofficial Guide to Washington, D.C. It's available on Amazon.com. Also, we have support for Washington, D.C. on our website, touringplans.com. So in this podcast, we want to go over a quick tour of the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. We're going to go over the basics, where it is, how you get there when you should go, and whatnot. And then we're going to go over some of the highlights of each of the galleries in the Air and Space Museum. We don't have time to go through every single exhibit. There are thousands of them, but we're going to try and touch the highlights, hopefully get you interested in going to see the museum for yourself on your next trip. So, Brian, why don't you give us the the basics of the National Air and Space Museum? Where is it? How do you get there? Who should go? It is on Independence Ave. It is on the, the south end of the mall in between the National Museum of the American Indian and basically the Smithsonian Castle, the, the center point on the south side of the mall. It is probably, I don't have to say probably, it is the most popular museum in Washington, D.C., and I think it's one of the most visited in the country, if not the most visited. So uh, just follow the crowd and you'll get there. It's but, actually um, number one, and it's actually the it? most visited museum in the world. Oh, it is in the world. Okay, I was I was gonna say that, and I thought, no, that sounds too grandiose. Yeah. But uh, but I guess that's that's correct. For years, it was neck and neck with the Louvre, but we've surpassed them last year, 2016. 
Yeah, take, take that, that friends. <laughs> <laughs> As always, with when you're dealing with DC, the easiest way to get anywhere is by using public transportation because trying to park anywhere downtown is ridiculously hard. The metro is generally my my favorite, and you're kind of in luck in that there is a metro station. There's Lafont Plaza, which is a hub for the blue-orange-silver lines and also the green-yellow lines. So where no matter where you are, you can probably get there, and that's only about two blocks away from the Air and Space Museum. So it's relatively easy to get to uh, by public transportation. I would say, Brian, that uh, if you're on the red line, which I am frequently, that stopping off at Metro Center and taking a short walk, it's less than 10 minutes. We'll also get you there. Yeah, if if you're on the if you're on the red line, it's it, it's almost always easier just to get off at Metro Center and walk than transfer because it can be a mess trying to t- transfer. Or you could always just just jump in a cab or an Uber or something like that and flag down a passing congressman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How much does it cost to get in? It costs nothing. It is a Smithsonian museum. Uh, the Smithsonian organization have no admission charges on any of their museums, and there are more than a dozen of them. So Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum is free to get in. It is open, I believe it is 364 days a year. I believe Christmas is the only day it is closed. That's right. Uh, Hours are generally from around 10 to 5.30, although in the summer and busy periods like Cherry Blossom Festival, they often extend hours till 7.30 or so. How early should people get there if they want to show up at opening? I know there's a line that forms prior to opening. How far in advance do you want to get there to beat the crowds? If you're there over the summer or during Cherry Blossom Festival, I would say a half hour is probably fine. It's a big museum. So even though you get there and it looks like there's a huge crowd of people outside, when they open the doors and that crowd disperses throughout the museum, it's going to look real, real small. So I wouldn't go any farther than that. If you're there during an off period over the winter or a weekday during the school year, um, even though there are plenty of school trips that that will stop by, you really don't have to get there more than a few minutes before they open. It's not going to be that bad. For some insider info, what I've always found from being a frequenter of all the different museums in D.C. is that if you go later in the afternoon between, say, 3.30 to 5, you're going to end up with a lot less crowd and a lot easier access to different exhibits. So if you want to wait, because it is the most popular museum of all of them, you may want to put that at the end of your day, assuming you're not too tired. And check it out at that time in the day. It tends to be a little less crowded. Especially, I've noticed, if the hours are extended. Oh, yeah. Uh, once it gets past about 5.30 or 6, the crowd starts yeah. thinning out a lot because they're all probably going to dinner. So, And also, one quick thing. There are two entrances. There's one on the mall side on Jefferson Drive and then one on Independence Avenue. So if you walk up to one of them, and especially if you see a lot of buses lined up, maybe take the time to walk around the other side and look and see what that entrance is like. Because sometimes there are very different crowds at one versus the other. Absolutely true, because I think the buses mostly come in from Independence. And they do, yeah. easier way, I think, is usually going through the Jefferson entrance, the uh, mall side. I'll say this. If you're visiting on a holiday, like Fourth of July or any time during the summer, and you're getting there half an hour early, bring some water with you because the sun can be kind of intense bouncing off the marble Definitely. or the granite that's uh, that's out there. And uh, it gets really, really hot, really, really fast. But okay, let's say let's say you get in, you have to go through security. They do metal detection, so don't bring anything you, you don't want confiscated. But then, Renee, you, uh, you enter, and what's the first thing you see when you, uh, when you go into Air and Space Museum? Well, for me, the first thing I kind of get excited about seeing is the new edition that was at, in honor of the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, but it's the Starship Enterprise. It, it is a replica. It was actually used for the filming of the show, and it lights up a couple times a day. I think I want to say 11 and 2 and maybe... 12. And so it's it's really, it's a spectacular addition, and I really love it myself. It's right there in the main lobby? Yeah, yeah, when you first come in, you'll see it. Although, 
I will say it's much smaller than you think it's going to be. <laughs> I was surprised the first time I saw it, I was thinking, oh, it's a TV model. It's probably going to be, you know, 10 feet long, something like that. No, it's about three feet long. It's in a little display case. It's still very, very cool because it's super detailed. But yeah, I was I was looking for something a little larger. Well, that's true. But anybody who's a Star Trek fan will still be very excited to see it. So I recommend that. And of course, I think the one of the most important showpieces of the entire building is the lunar module that was actually used for testing. Not It didn't land on the moon as they don't have any of those. But this was the LM number two, I want to call it. And uh, that's pretty impressive if you're a fan of the Apollo moon stories, I think you'll really be excited to see that. And you'll see it sort of looks a bit rickety, kind of makes you think, boy, that was a that was a leap of faith for those people to go up there and do that. So Renee, once, once we uh, get past security, the first thing that we see is is the milestones of flight hall, right? Right. That's the name of the hall. Sorry about that. Okay. So why don't you give us a, uh, an overview of that? What else is uh, What else is there? Well, Chuck Yeager's plane is there, the glamorous Galenis, which was the first to break the sound barrier. You'll see a bunch of early jet engines that were developed and used in the first planes that that ever flew jet propelled type of, of flying and the viking i want to say the first aircraft to land to reach mars the viking what is it called land rover maybe the viking lander lander yeah. land, land the, viking, the viking land rover no no, no. That's, that's what that's when uh, the norwegian people take over uh, british car making <laughs> Right, it's the one that went on over the, the, I guess if you saw there's a movie, um, IMAX movie about this particular machine that sort of was run from afar and it traveled all over the surface of the Mars and it's, it's really cool. And John Glenn's original Mercury Friendship 7, which was the first to orbit the Earth. Or he was the first, I should say, it was he, this was the first American to orbit the Earth. And if you just saw that recent movie, Hidden Figures, it'll be very exciting to see it and to think about all that went into getting John Glenn to do such a heroic and exciting thing for our country. The Gemini 4 is there, and that was what carried Ed White, who was the first American to walk in space. Let's see, the nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles from U.S. and Russia are quite prominent. When you walk in, you'll see those. What could possibly go wrong? Is the Spirit of St. Louis still there? It is, but it's up, of course, hanging high above you when you walk in, and that you can actually see it a lot better if you get up higher, but you can certainly see it from there as well. And there's also the Welcome Center in the middle of the building. If you want to buy tickets for the planetarium or to go to IMAX, you can go there and get information from them and a map as well. Awesome. So everything's and, right there when uh, when you first get in. Go ahead, Brian. And I was going to say that one of the things they added and when they redid it in uh, 2016 was this gigantic information touch screen that is very noticeable. It looks very cool. Every time I've been there, it's been so crowded and there are so many kids and their sticky hands touching it that <laughs> it makes me not want to play with it. But when I, when I watch them do it, it looks very nice. And I also love the beautiful mural that you see when you first walk in on the right and uh, of, I guess... Uh, Flight. Yep. I mean, that that's beautiful, I think really worth seeing. It's a, a astronaut walking on the moon's surface. So if you can pry your kids away from the stuff in the milestones of Flight Hall, I recommend seeing first this gallery called How Things Fly. It's gallery number 109. It's immediately to the right if you come in off the Independence Boulevard? Avenue. Independence Avenue entrance. What How Things Fly describes or does is it provides a bunch of small hands-on displays. Most of them are about the size of like an ATM or a phone booth that demonstrate uh, all of the principles on which airplane and, and rocket flight depends. So things like thrust and drag and lift and weight are all there. And there are a bunch of employees or docents around to explain how each of these things work. So for example, one of the displays has uh, part of an airplane wing submerged in a pipe full of colored water. And you push a button to start the display, and a pump moves water over the wing, showing how the water on top of the wing has lower pressure than the water below the wing. And that explains the Bernoulli principle, which is the same effect that creates lift in airplane wings in air. That, uh, that kind of stuff is super interesting. There's another hands-on display that explains why wings are round in the front and pointy in the back. There's a really cool spring thing oh, yes. that explains the speed of sound. Do you... Brian, did you play with this? I played with everything in there to the point that I feel guilty because there's <laughs> children behind me. 
my uh, my favorite thing though is the uh, the vacuum changer with the propeller airplanes. Mm-hmm. Have you guys have you guys both seen this one? Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm. There's usually so many people around those particular activities that you do have to be a bit patient. I think. So uh, so this one's a jar. That's a bell jar, and on the bell jar. At the bottom is a piece of wood with a hinge that attaches it to the table. And on the piece of wood is an electric motor and a propeller. And you push a button and the airplane propeller spins and it lifts up the piece of wood into the bell jar, essentially pushing the air down and lifting the board up. But this experiment is designed to show why propellers don't work in space. And of course, we all know they don't work in space because there's no air in space for the propeller to push against. So you push another button and a vacuum sucks all the air out of the bell jar. And then you see that the propeller doesn't actually lift the board up because there's no air for it to push against. It's kind of fascinating. There's a couple other interesting things. A couple times a day, there's uh, instructors lead talks on different topics related to air and space. There's almost invariably a talk on how to build a great paper airplane complete with hands-on activities. And then the last part of it, there's a chance for kids to sit in a real Cessna 150 cockpit. And the flaps actually move on it. The flaps actually move. That's right. And it's, it's remarkably small. It's, it's actually small enough. I think they don't let adults in. It's just for kids. But to me, the, the most fascinating thing is right at the very end, the activities people will sit a kid on a pivoting chair, like a, a stool that spins around. And they'll hand the kid a bicycle wheel and turn the bicycle wheel. And the reaction that you get is something that no kid can expect. So you essentially you spin the, the bicycle wheel and kids turn to the right. It's a lesson on gyroscopes. And it's remarkably fun. It's remarkably interesting. It shows you how, uh, how, how the uh, angular momentum works, which is how helicopters move forward and back. It's uh, super interesting stuff. That sounds really cool. It is. And it's all hands-on stuff. Kids love it. We've all commented on how crowded the thing is. That's because all of them are very well done. I see just going there first thing in the morning for a couple of reasons. One, it's less crowded. Number two, you can point out later as you're touring the museum, some of the same principles that the kids saw in how things fly, like, you know, rocket motors and propellers and things like that. So it's a good introduction to the basics of flight. So I think that's actually your first stop if you've got kids. Go to that How Things Fly. Definitely, because I, as someone with small kids, I've had my kids spend multiple hours in there before, but it really doesn't... It's really no fun if you can't get to the front to actually play with the stuff and you don't want to be waiting behind seven other people and have other people cutting in front and all that. It gets very, very aggravating. So definitely go there first. So once you uh, once you get through that, there are pr- probably two dozen different galleries that you can go to. We don't have time in, in this one podcast to go through each of the galleries. I would say that all of them are, are, are somewhat interesting, some of them more than others. Brian, why don't you take us through the DC-3 in America by Air Gallery? America by Air is is basically the commercial air service. It's it's the the start of commercial commercial air service in the 1920s and 30s. The most, at least in our opinion, the most important thing in there is the Douglas DC-3. It is larger and faster than some of the others. Other than that, it's it's kind of the same thing. <laughs> what was cool about this is that it, it only held 21 passengers in seats. So this was a, a passenger plane and one of the first passenger planes. Pa- planes, of course, uh, when they were invented, the first thing they, they were using them for was, was business. Mm-hmm. The U.S. mail was using them. They were using them for, for cargo, things like that. Uh, this DC-3 was one of the first that, that actually held passengers. So it, it seated 21, mm-hmm. but you also had sleeper compartments and it could sleep. Oh, like trains. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It looks like that. Which I, I just think is crazy. As someone who who almost who hates red-eye flights because I have terrible time sleeping on a plane as a, a taller-than-average person, having a sleeper car sounds like the greatest thing in the world. Now, only 600 or so DC-3s were actually built for commercial airlines. Um, there was many, many more, over 10,000 for, for military usage. This plane, it, it, was, it was changed to the C-47 for military use, and they actually flew some into the 1980s. So we're talking, this, this was developed in... The U.S. military flew it into the 1980s. This, this was developed in 1933. So we're talking a 50-year lifespan on this plane. So not wow. only could it actually hold passengers, it lasted forever. Can you imagine, imagine going and getting on like a U.S. air flight and being told the plane has been in service for 50 years? You can't actually fly the DC-3 now if you're in, uh, if you're in Alaska. No uh, way. Buffalo Airways? Still flies the DC-3. They've got eight of them. 
It's it's Alaska, so you mean you gotta get to Alaska first. But if you're in Yellowknife, look I would up. do that. Although maybe I'm like, I would do it just for that. <laughs> just maybe I'll wait till my kids are older or I have a better will in place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the the history of all of the planes that are shown in America by Air, it's essentially how uh, you go from one plane to the next, and it's the second plane that replaced the one before it. So you get this chronological history of, of improvements in the planes that culminated with the uh, the DC-3, and I, I think that actually is probably the most important plane for that particular era up until about uh, 1939. I really love the fact that the kids can sit in the cockpit of the 747, and I think that's really exciting. Kids love that. And, you know, seeing the little bathroom, I think, is kind of... A, they kind of like that. <laughs> it, has, it hasn't changed, right? I mean, this so this is a 747 from from 40 years ago. It's it's like commercial airplane bathrooms haven't changed in 40 years. No, they really haven't. <laughs> well, and what's cool, right outside of that, and and I was actually with with Len and Laurel as we were playing around with this. They have a big wooden bench, and on it are the different widths oh. of of airline seats over time. Wow. And what what shocked me the most about it is. The current time is not the narrowest they have been. No, They're, they were actually narrower at different points in history. Which, and and again, as a, I am not generally an overweight person. I am tall, and my hips barely fit in some of those seats. It's like a church pew, right? And they've got little dividers built into the wood wooden chair, and the dividers essentially are how wide the seats were on these various planes. And you look at some of these, and you're like, I can't be that wide, it's, right? Yeah, they, they were probably people weren't quite as, uh, you know, well-fed as we are today. If you made it to that time of your life where you're <laughs> old enough to fly, you're probably disease-ridden by that point, and you're in your mid-30s and couldn't hold food down. That's what I'm going with on that. <laughs> so same time period, but across the hall is another gallery. It's called the Golden Age of Flight. It covers basically the same time period, 1919 to roughly 1939, the time period between the two wars. So, uh, so the Golden Age of Flight covers this period in flight history where the Wright brothers and others have already figured out how to build the basics of a plane that happened early in the early part of the 20th century. And once those things were done, people started to compete on how fast they could fly, how far, and how high. And there were all kinds of competitions popping up, all kind of air races and air shows and things like that. And this gallery covers that time. So there's a bunch of different planes covered here, along with backgrounds on the different races and air trophies and things like that. But the uh, the one airplane I want to call it here is the Hughes H-1. It was built by Howard Hughes, so long before he was the reclusive billionaire with the crazy fingernails, he was an aviation legend. Howard Hughes was very interested in going fast. He wanted to break the world speed record, so he commissioned the design of this plane, the Hughes H-1, in 1934. At the time, it was the most modern aircraft ever built. He used wind tunnels to test it. It had a retractable landing gear. It also had this thing called flush rivets for less drag and two sets of purpose-built wings. He had longer wings for flying across the country and little short stubby wings for setting airspeed records. He set the world speed record of 352 miles an hour in it in 1937. The current speed record, anyone know? Nope. Renee, how do you not know? Come on. <laughs> current speed record, 64 minutes from coast to coast, Los Angeles to New York, by the SR-71 Blackbird that happens to be at the Udvar Hazy Center, also an airspace museum in Chantilly, Virginia. We'll talk about that. So if, if the Blackbird did it in 64 minutes, how long did it take Hughes in the H-1? Uh, seven hours. <laughs> so, well. so, so the Blackbird is somewhat faster. But the interesting thing is Howard Hughes is the last civilian to hold the airspeed record. Uh, after that, it was uh, strictly military aircraft. I think this plane is, is super attractive. It's all aluminum. It's super shiny. They don't let you touch it, obviously, because of the fingerprints and have to, the fact that they have to polish it every day. But it's a very interesting plane. I can see also why they don't put it out where sunlight would hit it because it would burn the place down. <laughs> it is that reflective. I mean, it is just a, a gorgeous plane. So one of my favorites. I feel like there was some test and adjust there where Hughes was in it the first time the the sun hit the cop yeah, no, right in front of him and blinded him. And he was like, okay, this part can't be him. It's, it's why it's not in Milestones of Flight because Milestones of Flight has those really big glass windows. <laughs> and you'd just be burning everything down. You're like, I smell bacon. I smell bacon. All right. All right, so that's it for the, uh, for the Golden Age of Flight and pretty much for the first floor. Those, I think, are, the, are some of the highlights. How Things Fly, America by Air, Milestones of Flight, and then the Golden Age of Flight. On the second floor, there are some other highlights as well. Renee, why don't you start us off with uh, probably the most famous plane in the entire exhibit? 
Yeah, it is. It's uh, incredible because if you actually go to Kitty Hawk, you think you might be seeing the original, real, authentic Wright Flyer, but you're not because it's in the Air and Space Museum. It is the original 1903 Wright Flyer. It's the centerpiece of the exhibit. Of course, it's surrounded by lots of other interesting kinds of prototypes that people developed and actually flew. So you'll get to see other ones like their 1980, or sorry, 1899 kite built by the Wright brothers and a couple of a reproduction of one of their gliders. The whole gallery is, is supposed to look like, I guess, look like Kitty Hawk, where they did all of their experiment flights. And it's very, it's important part of the of the entire museum and a very important, I think, for the, your children to see that part. So make sure you stop there. By the way, this is the only plane in the room. This is Gallery 209, right? One of the things I like about it is when you first enter, you're essentially introduced to the Wright Brothers bicycle shop. That's right. I forgot about that. And it shows you how how the Wright brothers took the skills that they had learned in repairing and building bicycles and applied it to flight. So you see the things about, you know, bicycle chains leading to the chain-driven propellers on the airplanes. But the other interesting thing I have, there's a small little display it's on the right-hand side of the gallery. It's about maybe 10 yards in. Essentially, it's correspondence or letters that the Wright brothers wrote to the Smithsonian Institution 100 years ago, asking them for all the information they have about flight which was kind of neat. So they, uh, the Smithsonian has the letters to the Smithsonian from the Wright brothers asking them, what do you know about uh, how to make things fly? It was kind of great. They have one of the, a replica at least, of one of the Wright brothers' bicycles in there. And I love being able to look at it and then turning around and looking at the plane and being able to see how they just took the drive system for a bicycle and stuck it to a plane. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's just... It's a- it's a chain and sprocket system, right? Let's just make it fly. Yeah, it was it was kind of. I do like the gliders too because um, it ties back to a number of other things. Going back to the uh, the early flight gallery, which is on the first floor, we didn't talk about it, but there's a, a glider in there by a guy named Lilienthal that used the same principles, and also some of the principles that the Wright brothers used to control the Wright flyer, things like wing warping, are also uh, demonstrated throughout the other galleries. So there are two ways to get into the gallery. One of them is a dedicated entrance. The other one is a dedicated exit. You enter on the right, you exit on the left, and the Smithsonian does enforce that. Also, on major holidays, this has got to be one of the most crowded rooms in the in the museum, right? Yep, for sure. Yeah. But it's worth the wait, for sure. I, you can't miss it. It's um, interesting to note, too, that it, they do have the – it's the original structure, and the wood and the propellers are all original, but they did replace the fabric about – I don't know, 1980, I believe. Yeah, it's canvas, right? It's just, right. it's going to get you know, moths. And it's pulled so tight. I mean, it's like Joan Rivers' facelift. <laughs> the skin is pulled so tight over the, you know, the bones of the, uh, of the airplane that eventually it'll either stretch and sag or, or rip and need to be replaced. Rest in peace, Joan. All right, so Brian, uh, enough about airplanes. Let's talk about uh, space for a little bit. One of my favorite things on the second floor... Skylab. The Skylab Orbital Workshop, yeah. The entrance to it is on the second floor, although it is so large, the rest of it is contained in the Space Race Gallery, which is actually a multi-level gallery on the first floor, and it is Gallery 114. But the Skylab Orbital Workshop is its the, the largest component of what we know as Skylab, which is the first, America's first space station, excuse me. This is the living quarters, the work areas, storage areas, research equipment, and most of the supplies. Now, that sounds like you're thinking, if you've never seen it, oh, this is going to be a pretty big thing. (laughs) It's not that big. Uh, The shocking thing of walking through Skylab is that there is no space in there. I mean, you walk in and it is immediately claustrophobic. Yeah. To the point that I believe, Len, this freaks you out. (laughs) It does, actually. It's not, I mean, it can't be more than like 30 feet across. No. But it's dark. I mean, some of our listeners have been on cruise ships. If you're familiar with how small, like, bathrooms are on cruise ships, imagine even smaller than that for space. It's like that. The living quarters are cramped. You know, it's it's like trying to fit two, pe- two people in a phone booth. And the reason is, is it takes a lot of rocket fuel to propel things like Skylab into orbit, and there are limits to what you can do. So making things as small and as lightweight as possible helps getting get them into orbit. Now, Brian, didn't, didn't Skylab crash into, like, Australia? Yeah, maybe. Uh, but uh, this would have been the backup Skylab if they had kept the, the program going. Ah. They had built two of them. 
one of which they launched into Earth orbit in, in May of 1973. This one was supposed to be the backup and or replacement if necessary. They decided to cancel the whole program, and in 75, they shipped this one here to air and space. So it is a real functioning Skylab. It just was never actually put into space. Uh, I, I do want to mention this gets very long lines sometimes for reasons that I cannot quite fathom because you literally just walk through it. But be ready because uh, the, the wait can get to be about 20, 30 minutes sometimes just to walk through uh, Skylab here. So that's true. Yeah. I think what people do what I did is they walk in, they get to the middle of it, they look around, they look at their family members and say, there's absolutely no way I'm ever going to do this. And then they leave. Isn't, isn't one, of the, one of the rooms in there like a dentistry room? Or a medical room where they show how you would do procedures on astronauts if they were you know, sick in space. I think that's one of them. Yeah. yeah. It's just mm-hmm. it's the stuff of nightmares, I'm telling you right now. Yeah. I mean, you, you walk through just – and you hear the little voice inside your head going, in space, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> exactly. Everyone does that. <laughs> but I think it's a fantastic exhibit. It shows you the kind of stuff that, uh, that astronauts go through uh, when they're in space. And I imagine the International Space Station, which is aloft now – it's substantially bigger, but that's all relative, right? You're still in some very, very small spaces. Yeah, I really like it. I really like it quite a bit. All right, a couple of other things on the second floor. There are two exhibits devoted to World War One and World War II. If you're at all interested in World War II airplanes, you should definitely go check out Udvar Hazy. The air and space exhibit for World War II typically has fighter airplanes and only a few of them. So things like bombers, and other airplanes related to World War II, they don't have, simply don't have enough space for. So go check out uh, Udvar Hazy. They've got tons of other stuff. So for World War One, the gallery is on second floor. It's uh, called Legend, Memory, and the Great War in the Air. Not the most compelling title, but it is World War One. It's Gallery 206. And basically what they're showing here are the other uh, fighter planes and portions of some bombers. So if you recall, most of World War One was fought in trenches. And so the first part of the gallery when you walk in shows how the airplane was supposed to affect trench warfare in World War One, And it turns out that it actually didn't very much because trench warfare was so embedded into the culture. There are a couple of bombers on there, but they actually show scale models of them. One of them is the Zeppelin R4 bomber. Zeppelin is in, yes, the guy that made the Hindenburg. Blood Zeppelin? Oh, sorry. Uh, yes, exactly. Oh. Typical wingspan for that thing is 138 feet, so way bigger than a Boeing 747, but the plane itself is too large to be displayed in the museum, so they have a scale model there. I think the most interesting plane here, though, is uh, is the Red Baron's plane, Manfred von Richthofen. His Albatross DVA It was the best fighter for Germany at the time. It had a Mercedes-Benz engine in it, two machine guns. It was super fast, super light, and very agile. Uh, so von Richthofen was uh, was able to shoot down a lot of Allied planes during the war on that. There's also some other uh, Allied planes and some other planes in there, but that's the, uh, the highlight for that one. There's also this display of aircraft engines uh, towards the end of the display. The thing about these is that they show how fast development of aircraft engines and aircraft technology happened during the war. So again, we're, uh, World War One started, what, 1917, 1914? I think the Americans entered in 1917, or, yeah, but it had been going on, I think, at least two years or so, or a year before. Okay, so World War One started, what, 1914, 1915? People had been flying for under 15 years. The thing that the war did is produced a vast amount, or through a vast amount of technology and money at advancing a flight, powered flight especially, so making planes go faster and higher. What you see in here towards the end of the gallery is how engine design for airplanes expanded very, very quickly. In fact, there are instances in this gallery where from the time that somebody started designing a plane to the time they were done six minutes later, the technology that they had used to develop it was already obsolete. That's how fast things were changing in World War One, And that's kind of interesting to see on the engine side. And some of them, the the SPAD... uh, the. Eight Smith Four, yeah, it was one they actually had the engine, and they really liked the engine, and then just designed a plane to go around it. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that was one way of doing the uh, aircraft design back in the day, right? We we found the engine, we uh, need to build an airplane around it. Directly across from that is, I think, one of my two favorite uh, sections of the museum. It's the World War II Aviation Gallery. So as we said, lots of 
very famous airplanes. This is my personal favorite gallery. I am a little too young for World War II nostalgia, but my father is a big fan of World War II movies. So I grew up seeing movies involving these planes, and it is it was awesome to see them in person. Yeah, I think they're, every classic fighter from World War II is shown here, or most of them. It's uh, called the World War II Aviation Gallery. Uh, sorry, World War II Aviation. It's Gallery 205. These are all land-based fighter aircraft. There are naval aircraft across the hall from it. But they're showing here the very best fighter aircraft from each of the major combatants in World War II, starting off with Britain's Spitfire Mark 7C. This was the best fighter aircraft produced by England during the war. It was produced by a guy who had also designed another plane in the gallery, the S6B. It's a Gallery 105. It broke the world speed record at the time, and it shares some of the characteristics of that plane, things like elliptical wings, super powerful Rolls-Royce engines, the Merlin. They actually show the engine separately when you're walking into the gallery. Also had eight machine guns. Obviously, the Spitfires most famous for winning the Battle of Britain in the summer of 1940 versus Germany, and that's where it proved itself. It stayed in uh, production well after the war. This particular plane that they show, though, never actually flew during the war. It was uh, sent to the United States towards the end. I guess it was a display aircraft. But that's, uh, that's England's best plane. The United States' best plane... It's the P-51D Mustang, arguably the United States' best fighter during the war. It was fast, super maneuverable, well-armed, and it had a 1,600-mile range, so it could fly 800 miles there and 800 miles back. The reason why it's America's best fighter is that it essentially changed the course of the war. So initially, the, uh, the P-51 was, a, was not a, a remarkable airplane. It was underpowered, didn't have a great ceiling, didn't have any kind of range. The U.S. took the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, put it into the, to the P-51, and things started to improve. During the latter parts of the war, starting around 1944, the P-51 started flying with the 8th Air Force. They flew alongside U.S. bombers over Germany. And prior to this, U.S. bombers couldn't have fighters accompany them into Germany. The fighters simply didn't have the range to stay with the bombers. So the bombers flew in unaccompanied, and those were disasters for the U.S. I think the attrition rate parade was something like 25% of their aircrafts. So that was definitely not sustainable. What the Allies had to do, because they didn't have fighter aircraft that accompanied the bombers, they had to do the bombing at night, and that reduced the accuracy of the bombing. But with the P-51, the P-51 could fly um, alongside the bombers deep into Germany and then all the way back, protecting the bombers all the time. So within a few months of the P-51 being introduced in bombing raids over, over Europe, they had essentially decimated the German Air Force and allowed the Allies to just bomb at will over Germany. And that really hastened the end of the war. In fact, there's this great story that Hermann Goering, the, uh, the head of the German Luftwaffe, when he first saw the P-51s over Berlin, he said, when I saw the Mustangs over Berlin, I knew the jig was up. So that pretty much tells you that the, uh, the air superiority thing there. That was a terrible German accent. <laughs> uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. So speaking of Germany, their Messerschmitt BF-109 is their, their best airplane. They made 20,000 of them. This one was actually flown during the war. The pilot that had the plane defected to Italy with it towards the war's end. Again, you don't want to go up against the P-51s if you don't have to. The Germans had started designing this plane in the 1930s, and they had actually used it in Spain in the late 1930s. So Germany entered the war not only knowing that they wanted to fight, but they had aircraft that had been tested in the war, whereas the Americans didn't and the British didn't because they weren't fighting wars at the time. So the, that gave the Messerschmitt uh, 109 a huge advantage at the first part of the war, and it really caused the Allies to catch up. Another big plane in there is the Japanese Zero, the Mitsubishi A6M. This was a very agile, very lightweight, reasonably fast plane, the best fighter that Japan had. It was their primary fighter during Pearl Harbor, they made more than 11,000 of them. The fact that it was light meant it also had a huge range, almost 1,600 miles, about what the P-51 had. The Zero was so maneuverable, in fact, that its kill ratio, the number of planes that it shot down versus how many planes it was shot, was 11 to 1, which is fantastic. It's a great, uh, it's a very, very good metric for any of those planes. Problem with the Zero was once the Allies got situated in the Pacific starting around 1943-1944. The fact that it was lightweight, made of canvas and wood, meant that it couldn't take much damage. So you had other Allied planes that could simply sustain much more damage and stay in the air longer and thus shoot down the Zeros. Last plane I want to talk about here, the the Italians apparently had fighters during World War II. This one's called the Fulgore. When they eventually built them, it took like when they, five <laughs> times as long for them to build the plane. It's true. So... 
you know, it's like it's like a Fiat with wings. That's where I was going with this, Brian. See, I was gonna I was gonna call it an Alfa Romeo. It's it's a, it's a fairly pretty. <laughs> Renee, would you like to get a slur here on the Italian automobile? No, no, I'm Italian. <laughs> Thank you. I love Alfa Romeos. They're beautiful, but the odds of you actually getting where you're going in one is not great. Yeah, so there are a couple of problems with this plane. First of all, it wasn't didn't have the range of the P51. Uh, second, to Brian's point, it took about 22,000 labor hours to build one plane versus around 4,000 for a Messerschmitt. So five times as long as the Germans took to build a plane. Italians had better things to do than build planes. If, if you're in Italy, right, right, with all Italy has to offer is sitting in a factory building airplanes that you know are going to get shot down. Anyway, is, is that really the best use of your time? And I said the Italians said no. Not really. Exactly. I'm going with that. <laughs> the one interesting thing about this plane, this is the thing that sticks out. I think the Air and Space Museum actually calls it out. One of the wings is longer than the other. The left wing is about nine inches longer, and it's there to provide a little bit of extra lift on the left side, which counteracts the torque developed by the engine and the spilling propeller that wants to push the plane down to the left. It's a very interesting, I would say, almost Italian solution to that particular problem. I don't think uh, any other airplane manufacturers in the war did exactly that, but it was super interesting. So that's it for land-based fighters. There's a similar one for naval fighters opposite that. It's uh, Sea Air Operations, Gallery 201. Brian, do you want to go over this real quick? Sure. By a sea air plane, what they mean is anything that can take off from an aircraft carrier. If you're ever curious, if you ever see an, an aircraft that is not segregated like this and want to know if it's a Navy plane... Usually they will have a little hook off the back, at least the older ones will, and that is so that they can catch the cable as they land on the aircraft carrier so they don't go flying off the end in the ocean. Now, newer ones, they're, they're starting to use uh, electromagnets and things like that, so that doesn't need a hook. But really? You're using magnets now? They're, they're trying to. <laughs> um, I, don't, okay. I don't know if any are in production yet. Once upon a time, I worked for Naval Air Systems, so then they were still in very experimental phase. But in here, they have some interesting things, the Boeing FB, which would have been a very cool plane if they could have gotten it out when it was actually developed. But it took them about 15 years of experimenting, and, uh, and by then, it was, World War II had ended, and they couldn't really do much with it. And there's a Douglas a A4C Skyhawk, which is one of the longest-serving aircraft for the U.S. Navy. It's flown off of ships for almost 50 years, so they don't have big ones that you would know from, from the Navy, the uh, F-18 Hornets, the things like that. They don't have here because these are, are more focused on World War II era and just afterwards. But uh, if you are interested at all in aircraft carriers and, and how planes actually take off and land from them. There are some pretty cool displays, including a, a model of an aircraft, a full aircraft carrier. And you can watch the movie of the planes taking off. It feels really realistic, actually. Really? Why don't you talk about that for a little bit? Well, I, having just been on an aircraft carrier when I was in San Diego recently, I've, I was very uh, taken with how um, realistic it feels when you're in that room and you're watching these planes take off from the I mean, of course, you see the size of the planes that are in that in the in the hallway, hall, in that gallery, and then you try to picture them flying on on a boat. It doesn't seem like it, they should be able to land and take off very easily. But if you see how huge one of these aircraft carriers are, then you can understand it better. But they do. Uh, don't they have a part where you walk through and you can uh, go in the different parts of what, the inside of an aircraft carrier? I'm trying to remember. It's a replica of the uh, the command area of an aircraft carrier so they make it so you're, it's like you're looking out of the windows onto the deck and that's where they kind of show the movie so it it looks when they have you know some gears and levers and things that uh, i think are bolted together so you can't actually pull them because i try every single one of them but <laughs> it doesn't actually control the the movie that's shown on the screen <laughs> unfortunately no but i in a refurb that might happen in the in version two the thing i love about it is as you're standing in this in this control room where there would be windows is where they're projecting the film out of. And so it looks like you're actually looking down the aircraft carrier out into the open ocean and seeing these planes approach and land. It's, it's really fascinating. It's a great use of A, the space, and then B, it's a very clever idea to show you these things. It puts you right in the middle of all the action. I think it's, uh, it's one of the best done things in the, uh, in the entire museum. It's, it's pretty fascinating. It's, and plus, there's an upstairs and a downstairs, right? You can actually run up and down the stairs. The uh, the main thing that I get there is that, like, I have I have relatively big feet. Those stairs yep. on the aircraft carriers are about six inches wide. I don't think OSHA 
regulations apply on aircraft carriers. That's what I'm going with. Try a submarine. Those are tight. It looks it looks worse. I know. I know. But you know, I think a lot of people miss that gallery because it's sort of far off to the side. But I think it is worth visiting. It is. It's in the upper upper left back corner of the museum. I think it's what the last gallery on the upper left, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And the walkway kind of, you have to kind of specially walk that way to get to it. Like if you just follow the main walkway, you won't even go near it. So yeah, you kind of have to look for it. One thing to note in honor of World War One, this summer, they're going to be putting together an exhibit of artists' renderings of World War One from various soldiers who created different images of what World War II was like, photography, uh, engravings, rock carvings, paintings, trench art. It's going to be, I think, really interesting. So typically in the museum, there's one area on the first floor in the middle of the, the giant walkway where they do these sort of temporary art exhibits. That I think the last couple of times I was there, there was one on travel posters. Another one was on the photography, the art photography or the architecture of airports themselves, like the control towers. Yeah, I think that's what's still there. So this is the new one that's coming in there, Trench Warfare. Right, interesting, yeah. interesting to see. All right, so, uh, so while you're walking around looking at all of these exhibits, people want to know uh, a couple of things. Renee, how much time should you allocate for seeing the museum? If you wanted to do, let's say, a quick tour. I'd say you could, you know, do like a run through in 90 minutes and really cover a lot of ground. And that's probably even being generous. I don't think they should miss, you know, some of the important items that we've mentioned, but there's time you can spend just really reading every single exhibit. And if you really want to take your time and see things and learn specifics about each of the artifacts, then you might want to give yourself at least two to two and a half hours, I would say, and probably stop to get a snack or coffee or something just to keep you going. So you, you could probably spend all day there if you wanted to go see a movie or two and you really wanted to go through each of the exhibits. Oh, yeah. yeah, you could you Definitely. could spend seven or eight hours there and I have. <laughs> I think 90 minutes is the absolute minimum. Definitely. I mean, that's just like running through and not really reading yeah. anything, but just trying to look up at all these amazing planes that are hanging. And, and, and so, you know, that's just... I think you really, that it's not doing it justice, of course, but if that's all you have, then it's still worth popping in and seeing it. What, um, what do you think can be skipped? Like if time is tight? That's a good question. Well, what do you think? I, I was going to say, I think some of the, some of the space stuff, um, some of it's very good. I like the space race on the first floor, which is where, where Skylab is. I like, is it, is it moving beyond Earth? Is that the one where they have the video of the space shuttle launch and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I thought that was, that's skippable. The video is the best part of it, I will say. Um, the the planets, uh, exploring the planets is Gallery two really just yeah. goes through yeah. a lot of stuff that most people learn in, in grade school. There's a few galleries, a few of the space galleries that just aren't, because they, because they can't get the the actual vehicles they can't you know it, it's um it's a lot of theoretical stuff so if you're not really really into space exploration i, I would say those can probably be skipped if if they don't sound that interesting i would uh, i would throw one more thing in there i think the planes are interesting but i will admit it's probably not for everyone the baron hilton pioneers of flight gallery on the second floor there are a couple of interesting planes there. One of them is Amelia Earhart's. Yeah, you can't miss that one, but that's good. Ah, tough to say. If time is tight. No, I personally find it very inspiring, and I'm sure most young girls would too. Uh, okay, fair enough. I, uh, I like to go there and uh, take a picture next to it and say, look, I found Amelia Earhart's plane. <laughs> uh, but okay, so maybe that's the one thing you see in that particular hall. There's, there's some interesting backstories in some of the other planes. But uh, if time is tight, I would say maybe just stick to the Amelia Earhart plane then. Maybe get the the drones, possibly. I don't know. I'd, but they're pretty interesting, though. They're pretty interesting shapes. But they're flying above you all the time in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Go outside and look up, and they're there. I would say you could skip the time and navigation, except Len would fire me. <sighs> <laughs> it's it's the history of of GPS navigation, and it's, it takes a special kind of geek to appreciate that. I'll, uh, I'll admit it. I will say they do have uh, moving portraits in there now that talk to each other every once in a no, while. Oh, really? Pretty funny. Yeah. Um, I put on our on our touring plans. I, I, if you want to go back to our, our touring plans Twitter account on uh, July first of 2016, I was I was in the, the Air and Space Museum most of the night. Uh, they did an all night thing, and uh, and I put up a video of the moving portraits in there. It's uh, they do, and it's it's very much like the Harry Potter ride at Universal, where <laughs> they, they look like pictures, and then they kind of come to life, and they 
talk to, at people, and then they kind of bicker with each other, and then go back. To oh, that's fantastic! Uh, that's pretty cool. I like that. That's sort of like the simulators too, or another thing you want to be sure to do not go past them because your children will never let you go past them. Let's put it that way. Try to avoid. It? Oh yes, it's very nauseating. You can go upside down in those things. Yeah, it's crazy. And you can, it's you can, crazy. Yeah. They actually have some, I think, that house eight, up to eight people in one of them, I believe. Wow. Oh, that's, so that's, a, that's a party uh, event right there. It's a party capsule. Yeah, exactly. I think those are like, there's like 15 or $20 to do it. They're, they're not cheap, but, uh, but, nope. but definitely uh, interesting. I think it's like three minutes. If I was in there, they would be cleaning out sick for the next 20 minutes. Oh, geez. <laughs> All right. Uh, all right, Renee, where should people eat if they want to get something to eat during their tour of the Air and Space Museum? Well, if you're on a tight schedule, then, of course, you can eat at McDonald's, which is located inside the museum. And it also serves Boston Market fair as well as pizza so it's not only mcdonald's but if you have the time and of course you know it's free to get in you can always take a short walk next door to the american indian museum which has a phenomenal cafeteria and the lower level of the museum and it's really great food interesting food you're learning a lot about the whole countries um you know indigenous people and buffalo chili and different kinds of things that you probably wouldn't typically try. So I highly recommend it. If you have lots of time and you want just to get out and get some fresh air and then come back, then you can walk up to Capitol Hill, uh, just up past the U.S. Capitol and hit We the Pizza, which has every imaginable slice that you could ever dream of eating. I would like to nominate the indigenous people and Buffalo Chili as the title of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, that could be our rock band. I do like that name. That's very nice. I I do want to say, too, the McDonald's that's in the the Air and Space Museum gets really, really crowded at mealtime. So it might actually be a time savings to walk to the American Indian Museum to eat. And And there's, of course, you can get food trucks, too, which are parked along uh, Independence. Typically, they're not super exciting. You might just get a hot dog or a soft pretzel, but the Occasionally, there's more interesting food trucks passing through that you might be able to catch up with. Washington has some great food trucks. I agree. Yeah, there's uh, there's tons of stuff to be there. I think the cafeteria in air and space is probably the least interesting thing in the entire museum. But I will emphasize that it can be super, super crowded. When I was uh, when I was there last, which was the week after July 4th last year, I was talking to one of the cashiers about you know how crowded it was. And, and she told me that during the week of 4th of July, there was a two-hour line between the time you ordered your food and the time you got your food at McDonald's. Yeah, I just at that point you could you could walk back to your hotel, make some food and then walk back into the museum. So if you're if you're not up for a very long wait for some very mediocre food, go somewhere else. I think that's our best tip. Definitely. All right, Brian, speaking of food, why don't you uh, put this all in the doggy bag and bring us home? What uh <laughs> wrap this up for us? All right, thank you everyone for listening. Before you go, please give us a review, a five-star review if you don't mind on iTunes. Okay, give us whatever you want as long as it's five stars on iTunes or on Google Play or wherever you're listening to it right now. Giving reviews uh, not only helps our egos, but it helps other people find us when they're when they're searching. The way these things are cataloged is by number of stars and number of text actual written reviews so it really really helps us out so please do that buy the unofficial guide to washington dc if you are listening to this you are probably interested in washington dc it is a great book we have a ton of information way more than we could go on here so check that out wherever you buy books and visit touringplans.com we have a lot of Washington DC content. It is new, it is updated constantly, and we have we're gonna be having touring plans coming in the next few months, so keep an eye on that, please. Thank you for listening to the unofficial guide to the National Air and Space Museum. Be on the lookout for future episodes of the Unofficial Guide to Podcasts. And as always, we appreciate your likes, shares, and comments.